0: of the congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read again verses 8 and 9. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom thou now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Well, congregation began to consider this morning this great theme that while saving faith is alone, we could say, what saves, this saving faith is never alone. It is... A paradox, perhaps, but in fact, it makes total sense of the full teaching of Scripture. When we would ask ourselves what is the central and really the sole condition of salvation as it's set forth in the gospel, it is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But when we examine that true saving faith, the faith which binds us unto Christ and receives of his benefits, we find that in the true Christian, this true faith is accompanied by and really resulting in many other graces which mark and distinguish the true believer from the false. And so in this way, we are given a full picture of the Lord's dealings with us, and in this way able to profit from the right examination of our own experiences and lives in the light of God's word. And as we have considered this first chapter of Peter, I hope you've seen that as the great theme, that the wonderful truths of the gospel don't just remain static and inert, unchanging in our minds. No, they have this amazing impact on all of life. And as you consider the latter part of verse 8, which is our focus this afternoon, together with verse 9, you see something of a building upon what had been previously said. These Christians in Asia Minor, having never seen Christ, they yet received his blessing and knew him as their Savior And loved him sincerely from the heart. And as we unfolded what it meant to truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, we saw that there were three D's. And children, maybe you even remember what some of those D's were. There was the D of desire. Desire for God, the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. There was the delight in the Lord Jesus And there was devotion to the Lord Jesus. Each one part of that wonderful diamond of the love of the Christian for Christ. And as you turn over that diamond and you see the different hues of it, perhaps the latter part of the verse is speaking much more about the delight aspect of love. The one who is delighting in the Lord Jesus experiences, as uh, the Apostle says, the rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And this one whom he says he has not been seen with the eyes and yet has been believed on with the heart is the subject of this intense delight and joy. This the joy or rejoicing was spoken about earlier in verse 6 and we spoke about it in that sermon where we talk, talked about rejoicing in the midst of trials and tribulations. But here he returns to that theme and especially grounds it in the one in whom we delay, the Lord Jesus himself. Now, I think... It's proper to take that with verse 9, which further completes the thought, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. It's faith that's in the foreground here, the paradox that it sees much further than the keenest eyes, for it sees into invisible and spiritual realities revealed by the word of God. And it is this, this faith, which is both um, sound and... Um, And firm in the Lord Jesus, it is the condition of our salvation according to the gospel's promise, and it is accompanied by these marks. Thus far you see the basic thrust of this passage. In order to open up this second portion about rejoicing, I would like to consider this theme with you, the believer's joy in Christ. The believer's joy in Christ, perhaps not strictly separated from what we considered this morning, but focusing again on on a specific aspect of our love for Christ and seeking to plunge perhaps deeper into how this works out in a Christian. And I hope in, in focusing upon these things, it is not the sort of thing that is laying heavy burdens upon us, as though we would uh, see the privileges of the gospel as, uh, as burdens and, and heavy weights for ourselves. No, it is rather that we would seek after the, the fuller expression of the privileges of the gospel and come to enjoy them. That is a great purpose and theme for this afternoon's message. And with the Lord's help, let's now consider the believer's joy in Christ. And we'll have a main division of two headings here. First, that this joy is found in receiving salvation, and second, in enjoying salvation. Receiving salvation and enjoying salvation. And I'm sure it's no secret exactly where I'm getting a theme of receiving salvation. It is of course, what he says in so many words there in verse 9. Why is it that he says there is such joy in the Christian? Well, it is because receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You see, this rejoicing that is spoken about is no ordinary thing. When, We've already said it is a grace of the Lord, but we could see it was no ordinary thing even by the word that is used. The rejoicing here has the idea of, of literally jumping up and down with exuberance. That's the, the basic meaning of the, of the term, and it's used to express a violent joy, a great joy, a, a wondrous expression of delight. Here is what is possible for the Christian. And there's two things said about it. This joy that the person rejoices with is unspeakable. It can't be spoken about or described. It defies our description. So often don't you find that. You hear someone else speak of their experiences, and, and maybe you can nod or maybe you shake your head, but entirely sorting out how the Lord has dealt with you, well, sometimes it's, it's hard to speak about it. Well, here it's hard to speak about in this instance because it is beyond expression. It's an amazing, it's amazingly good and wonderful, the joy that is found through receiving salvation. And where it says it's full of glory, the idea there is that it brings glory to the Lord. Everything about this is bound up with the Lord's honor. It brings his name The glory and the honor and the praise the Lord delights in this receiving of salvation unto the joy of the Christian. John Piper, who is a wonderful theologian, written in many books, he has popularized this idea of Christian hedonism, that... We are to especially see this theme running through the Bible, that God is delighting in us as we are delighting in him. And, and there's joy, joy, joy in the Christian life. And whether or not we want to uh, make that the central theme of the whole Bible, there is truth in it. There is truth in it as is expressed here. God is not a stingy God. He does not want his children to languish in misery and sorrow. Indeed, he does chasten his children. Indeed, he does lead them through dark valleys in this life, including the trials and temptations which he spoke about in verse 6. But we ought not to distract from this, that God would have his people rejoice and experience joy. And it's found, as I say, in receiving the end of your faith. Now the end there has the idea of the purpose and the goal, everything about your faith. It leads you here. The faith of the Christian is not a confused faith that takes you to this place and to that place and and brings you all these sort of disjointed facts of the Bible and just has you affirm them and believe them as true. No, and indeed everything in the Bible is about Him, it's about Christ and his salvation, as we become instructed in growing in our faith, it becomes more evident. What would I say about this receiving of salvation? How is it that it brings this amazing joy and rejoicing to the Christian? I would want to say this in the first place, the perfection of it. If you want to know why it is that this amazing, unspeakable, full of glorying, joy and rejoicing comes home in the lives of the Lord's people it is this this salvation is unlike any other it is perfect he speaks about receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your souls well children maybe you want to say I don't know if that's really right Uh, the Apostle Peter talking in that way don't we confess every Lord's Day didn't we just confess it I believe in the resurrection of the body. So wouldn't we want to say that we're saved not only in our soul, but also our bodies, Peter? Well, that is certainly true. And Peter uh, has already expressed as much in this uh, very chapter, and we'll speak more about that in the future. But here he speaks about the salvation of the soul. And I think to distinguish it from all imperfect salvations that we may seek after. I mean, you would consider, for example, what the false salvations of the world would entice us with. When you think about Marxism and communism, it was a sort of religion. Indeed, still is, unfortunately, in many, uh, many people's minds. But communism, what does it deliver? Really a salvation of the body, a salvation from poverty, a salvation from need and from scarcity. A salvation that is, in, that is summarized in the here and now, in the things you can taste, touch, and smell. But Peter would say, there's no that is not the kind of salvation we would speak about. It's not merely something that would concern such things as that. No, this is a salvation that concerns your immortal soul. The soul of which the Lord Jesus said, What profiteth a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? To lose your soul, to lose your inner man or your inner woman, that part of you which endures forever, even upon your bodily death, and you pass into the hands of the living God and go into eternity. Upon such a a condition, the things of life and the things of this passing vapor of experience, they will not matter. What matters is this lasting spiritual eternal salvation. And indeed, bound up with that is the hope of the resurrection of the body but not to the exclusion of the soul. And of course, salvation in its perfection, if it would really concern the soul, what must we say of that? Well, it is a salvation that concerns the conscience. The conscience, which is that part of the soul which testifies of our dealings with the creator, of him as judge and lawgiver, of every sin and transgression we have committed against him. Many people draw that connection between the conscience and the language of Christ, where he talks about the worm that dieth not. The idea of the soul of the damned gnawing away at them as a worm for eternity as their conscience testifies against them that they have transgressed a holy God in such torments that every Sinner knows something of, however much they may suppress and uh, and discount it. In the quiet of their mind, in the stillness of the hour, the conscience says there is a God, that He is just, and there must be a just recompense of reward for every transgression of the law. But is a salvation of the soul that appeases the conscience, that soothes the conscience, not with flattery or delusion or through the hardening of the conscience, but from a word of heaven, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness with God that he may be feared, that Jesus has accomplished it all through his sacrificial death. This and this alone gives a peace in the heart and a sound basis upon which the agitated conscience can say that all is well. I can stand on that great and terrible day of the Lord, not in my own righteousness, but that which was purchased by Christ. It's perfect in that respect. We would also say this. It is concerning the liberty of the soul. Jesus Came, You see, not only to uh, free us from the condemnation of the law, but also from the tyranny of sin. The sin which enslaves and brings us under that terrible bondage whereby we do what we know will condemn. We do which we know will not satisfy. We do which we know will bring us far from God. That is the kind of tyranny which is severed by the work of Jesus Christ in the soul. Not that there is a perfect freedom from all sin, but there is a freedom from the bondage of sin. A freedom from the tyrannical lash of the enslaving whip of that evil Pharaoh, which is really a picture of Satan, is he not? who drives us further and further into our depths of depravity and giving us no rest yet you know, Jesus comes as that new and better pharaoh and says unto that wicked devil let my people go that they may come and serve me but that salvation which concerned a temporal deliverance from the land of Egypt is now fulfilled in this more perfect salvation that which concerns the souls of men and women. And whether you know it in your own experience, whether you've seen it in others, surely you cannot deny it. There are those who have been able to set aside years of compromise, years of complete worldliness. And then they take up their cross and follow after Jesus Christ. And yes, we know There are hypocrites. We know there are apostates. We know there are false believers. But dare we, we must never dare, I should say, to ever detract from this wonderful work of Christ, the perfection of his salvation in the soul. So thus far we see the perfection of this salvation, which is received, but let's further see the price of this salvation. Notice how it says receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. What is the price here? What is it that can be done to attain this great salvation that is so perfect and noble and wonderful that would bring such joy unto the heart? Well, notice it does not say earning this salvation. It does not say that if you weep enough tears, that if you pray enough prayers, that if you do enough good deeds, that if you starve yourself through fasting or you put away this or that thing in your life, that it can be yours. No, it simply is a gift to be received. And so the simple words which our fathers have taught us Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Like that poor beggar um, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sitting by the side of the city Jericho. Sitting by that gate, begging for morsels of food. And then he hears that Jesus of Nazareth has come. And so he begins to cry, out: oh, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus did reveal mercy unto that beggar. He called him unto himself, What would that you have me do for you, Lord, that I might receive my sight? And he did give him that sight with the words, Your faith has made you whole. Not anything great that he had done, not of his... Not his love for Jesus, not his conviction of sin, not this or that. It was the simple faith of a beggar, which was really the empty hand of a beggar, begging for the true living bread of Christ. That is the logic of the gospel. Not that it's some secret to life that gives you these 10 or 12 or 20 steps to a new and better whatever. No, it's simply this. It's all found in Christ. Christ has done it all. Christ has died for sinners like you. Receive him. Receive him now. As many as received him, they were given The grace to become the sons of God, it says in John chapter 1. What a great and important fact of this. It's a free salvation. It's offered without money and without price. Here are the riches of Jesus Christ. Here is the fullness of freedom from the condemnation. Freedom from the slavery of sin. And he asks nothing from you but that you receive it but that you receive it. Will you call him a liar? Will you say, there must be some fine print here somewhere. There must be some qualification which I'm not considering. And so it is that the wicked heart of unbelief will ascribe lies in the lips of the word of Christ, when in fact it is the unvarnished, complete truth. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone not of works, lest any one should boast. An astonishing thing this. And if we would see just those two things, we would see that surely there is cause for rejoicing here. Surely if the world did any sense they'd be clamoring for this message. Surely everything and anything else that people may be seeking after is not worthy to be compared with this. But it goes further. And I say this, concerning this receiving of salvation, it's bound up with the person of whom we were speaking of this morning. This person of whom is set forth in all these portions of the scripture. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it again at the end of Verse 3, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All these different, different realities about Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God, and yet He's true man. He is crucified, and yet He lives. He is the spotless Lamb of God, and yet He is the true word and wisdom from above. All that Jesus Christ is. It can be known by the one who receives this gospel. And would it be more or less cause for joy if you could distract the two, subtract the two or divide the two and say that here are the benefits of Christ and here is Christ himself. Here is everything he would offer you, but you can take or leave the person. Well, that would be a mutilated gospel, a false gospel. Such it says here in this verse so clearly. Jesus Christ, end of verse 7, Whom, having not seen ye love, in whom, though you, now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your soul is nothing other than having Jesus Christ. To have him is to have everything. To lack him is to lack everything. It is all about him. So I say that all of the joy of which the apostle speaks, the joy that is undescribable and unspeakable, the joy that brings glory unto God, it is this joy which is found by receiving salvation. And thus far, we could close our Bibles and say that is it. But as I was reflecting upon this passage, I said, there must be so many different ways in which we rob ourselves of this joy, in which we detract ourselves from the amazing realities of the gospel in one way or another way. And in this way, I think it's it's good to reflect upon this from this dimension as well, not only that... The believer's joy in Christ is through receiving salvation, but through this as well, enjoying salvation. Not that I would want you to believe that there is anything different, really, ultimately, as though it's one thing to receive salvation, another to enjoy it, as though there are different acts, because if you're doing one, you're doing the other. But really, uh, if you think about it, the one who needs to be constructed on how it is they are robbing themselves of joy, needs to look at it positively. To look at it, how if we would rightly receive Christ, whether for the first time or from afresh, it brings joy to our hearts. And let me bring you to three different Bible passages that I hope will speak to one of your needs whether now or in the future so I hope that you will hear me as I apply this truth of enjoying salvation in these three different ways. In the first place follow me in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy which you will recall is a series of sermons preached by the Apostle Moses and I want you to go to the very last um, verse of chapter 33 which is near the very end of the book. Moses was preaching on the edge of the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and he giving these instructions on how to remain faithful unto their covenant God, even unto the mission that was before them. Before them, you'll remember, lied the terrible giants that the spies had found in that land of Canaan, great and terrible armies. And... I want you to listen carefully to what he says to the gathered people of God as they are assembled right outside that promised land in verse 29 of chapter 33. Happy art thou, O Israel. Who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help? And who is the sword of thy excellency and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee and thou shalt tread upon their high places now why do i bring this text before us well on the one hand you can see it brings together some of the same themes of the text we had been considering there is the delighting there is the happiness there And there is the reality of salvation. O people saved by the Lord. But I want you to see the context in which these things are brought together. Unto a people who have been called to storm a fearsome adversary. This terrible um, assembly of nations who hated God and would seek to kill them and their families. Notice how with each one of these words that the... um, The Lord's servant Moses, he speaks about what a happy lot they have in the midst of that violent struggle. How with all the challenges that they have, it pales in comparison to the blessing that they enjoy. And why is that? Because of the amazing stature and character of their God. It says that he, the Lord, he is the shield of thy help. He will protect you. And who is the sword of thy excellently? He will grant you victory. And what of all those enemies, Moses? What about all the threats and all the troubles? Well, that enemy shall be found liars unto thee. And thou shalt tread upon thy high places. They will be but the dust beneath your sandals. And you would say, that's vain, that's foolish. Do you know who you are? You are just this pitiful little tribe of Israelites. Where do you stand against the fearsome enemies of these enemy nations? And of course, we know the answer. We know that the people added to their troubles and added to the years of their wanderings because when the Lord led them to that promised land, all they could see were the troubles. All they could see were the enemies and they doubted that the Lord could deliver. And so they came back to the Lord and said, no, Lord, we can't go forward because the threats are too great and we cannot do it. We cannot do it. We cannot do it. it." And the Lord was greatly displeased with them. Read this whole book of Deuteronomy, and Moses will speak about it at length. But now we have all that generation who perished in the desert. Now their children have come, and Moses says, Happy are you, O Israel. You will triumph surely. Why do I dwell upon this? Could it be that there is one here who is troubled and miserable? When the Lord would have you filled with joy, because where the Lord has brought you into the very promised land of delight. Brought you into a place of plenty, flowing with milk and honey, as it were. All of the excellencies of Christ, all you can do is look around at the difficulties and the troubles and the trials. And you say, it is not possible, Lord. And what does the word of God say here? Consider what a great God I am. Consider the promises that are delivered unto you. Consider the resources at your disposal, not the resources of man, but the resources of supernatural divine power. And so it comes to be exposed to this, that we can make ourselves miserable, fail to enjoy God's salvation because of wretched unbelief. And we can fancy it up with all kinds of other words or excuses. Here is what it is. Unbelief. Unbelief. And you say, well, how is it possible? Faith is a gift from God, and indeed it is. It is also commanded by the Lord. It does no good to say, well, I do not have the faith which the Lord does not give me. When the Lord has provided everything, the Lord is with us. We are his covenant people. His word is here. His promises are here. He speaks plainly and clearly and says, You are my own, and your enemies shall be found liars. And so we have it. We have one of the ways in which we fail to enjoy the salvation, the wretchedness of unbelief. Let me bring you to another passage of scripture. I go ahead in biblical history to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings, in the 18th chapter. And children, I'm sure you, you've heard of this story. Have you heard about that man by the name of Elijah? Elijah, he was a troubler of Israel, or so King Ahab thought, because King Ahab wanted everyone to worship the Baals did not want them to worship the true God. And so one day, uh, Elijah, the Lord's servant, he organized a great showdown between himself on the one hand and all of the priests of Baal, the false god. And the contest was very clear. Each one would bring a sacrifice. Each one would put them on an altar. Each one would pray to their God, Elijah to the true God, and the false priests to Baal. Well, what happened is, while well, the priests of Baal, they, they put that altar, on that, that sacrifice on the altar, they began crying out to Baal, Oh, Baal, hear us! Oh, Baal, hear us! And what did they do? They began to cut themselves and to try to ignite their, their God's fury with the smell of blood. And, of course, Elijah came out and prayed unto the Lord. Fire descended and burned both the sacrifice and the altar and all the water the men poured onto it, and the enemies were destroyed in the sight of the Lord's victory. We know the story well, but I wonder, do we remember what it was that Elijah said to those people gathered at Mount Carmel before they knew all this would unfold? What was his calling unto them? Well, he says it there uh, on verse 21. Right when he had assembled the people there on Mount Carmel, and before this great showdown, it says in verse 21, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal... Then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. You see, what we see from that brief window into this story is that Elijah saw very clearly that the sin of Ahab in bringing about this false worship was also the sin of the whole nation. They had all gone along with it as well. And really, there were people who probably weren't comfortable with this or that change that had been made in the worship and the introduction of the bales and and so forth. But they wanted to kind of straddle the fence, if you like. They wanted to say, well, this side has an opinion, this side has an opinion. We're kind of in the middle, basically. And so they didn't want to rock the boat. And so Elijah comes with the word of God upon his lips knowing by faith exactly how everything is going to unfold, and gives them this one chance to truly take a stand before the Lord's defeat of the enemy. And he says this, How long halt ye between of two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, and if Baal be God, then follow him. He's saying, why don't you just make up your mind? Choose one or the other. If Baal is so wonderful, then give up this Jehovah altogether. Give up the true God. Follow this idol of of Ahab's devising. You might say that's rather harsh and unloving of Elijah to speak so in this way, as though he he would cause these people to follow them to their own logical conclusion. But you see, sometimes the word of God must deal with us in that way because we are like those people who heard this exhortation and yet answered not a word, made no decision because really we are trying to live in two worlds, one in which God is true and faithful and another in which we are hedging our bets By putting our lot in with some substitute for him. And it can be all sorts of things. But it all boils down to basically this. The love of the world. The love of the world. The temptations of the world. Enticing you and drawing you unto true happiness and satisfaction. Apart from God. And according to the logic of this present evil age. What could it be for someone today that is causing you to live this awful double life? Is it the love of sexual immorality? Is it the love of money? Is it the love of reputation? Is it the love of this or that? Whatever you have put your hopes upon as the thing which is going to bring you happiness and satisfaction... Let me tell you this right now. If that is God, then give up on Jesus Christ and follow after that. Give up on everything which the Bible has to offer and follow fully after the world. If the world is God, follow the world. But, But if you know that that is a lie... If you know that the Lord is God, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that the Bible is true, then give up with your lukewarm Christianity. Stop hobbling between two opinions. Instead, live all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize this, that soever long the Christian life tries to lead this double life, it will lead to misery. Did not the Lord Jesus Christ himself say that you cannot serve two masters? You will love the one and despise the other. It will never fail. It's an iron rule of lodging. So you must either love Jesus Christ or despise him. And so I put this to you. It's the love of the world, the wretched love of the world together with the wretched unbelief. That is the cause of, ru- of ruining your joy. The third and last story I would like to bring you, before we bring this to a close, is found in the New Testament. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Familiar story, rather than summarizing it, I just want to read it for you. Luke chapter 10, beginning reading at the end there in verse 38. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which was also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost not thou care? that my sister hath left me to serve alone. bitter her, therefore, that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mar- Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. It's an incredible thing how the Holy Spirit organizes people in literal history to speak to so many different situations for which of us have not found ourselves in the feet and the life of this Martha. Cumbered and troubled about many things, looking this way and that, brought to a state of anxiety about, in this case, problems in the home, Dealing with practical needs, it seems, things that are laudable and lawful in themselves. But her problem was this that she saw a problem with the one who is simply sitting at Jesus' feet, delighting in him, because she saw that there must be more to it than that. But Jesus says very plainly one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. I think sometimes this boils down into a sort of theoretical way. You, you think that you need Jesus plus something else. You need Jesus plus this or that great deed done for him. You need Jesus plus this or, or that particular expression of, of experience in your life. And I think that what you see here is something that's simple, something very simple and unspectacular. The experience of, of this Mary was very simple. She simply said, I will sit down at his feet and bask in who he is. I will listen to his voice. I will trust in him. I will delight in this Savior. Nothing remarkable or flashy. No Jesus plus. No Jesus in all that he is. Jesus received in the humble heart. Jesus received in all that he is. And sometimes, if that theoretical problem is bothering us, it can lead us in the path that we are no true Christians apart from something else. But I say, Jesus instructs us rightly here. But I also say that there is a practical outworking of that as well. And that is that you see how Jesus guards as well this simple communion with his follower, this Mary, such that everything else can wait until you've had communion with me. And I think that as that practically boils down to our everyday lives, we can see how the devil is at work to lead us away from that simple time of communion with Christ in the stillness of the morning hour, in the few moments in which we may have with him, filling our lives with this or that amusement, this or that entertainment, this or that busyness, this or that rest for our body. When Jesus would say this, this is what you need. You need time with me, alone with me, listening from me, enjoying me. Congregation, when it comes to the practical enjoying of Christ, you can't separate it from actually spending time with him. Indeed, it is impossible to enjoy any marriage or any relationship if you refuse to spend time with them. If this is not the priority in your marriage, your marriage will fall apart. If this is not a priority in a friendship, the friendship will grow cold. So it also with the friend of sinners. Christ will never allow that love to grow completely cold. But sometimes if we grieve his spirit, he will allow us to see how far we get from him before we begin to cry up to him and plead for fresh uh, spiritual insight from above, testifying of his love for us. Let us not tempt him. Let us rather prize that personal time with him every day, also as families. Let us make this be the one thing that is needful. Not the wretched busyness, not the wretched distractions, but Jesus and him alone. congregation, I hope that these things have proved instructive to you. May the Lord give us light to both will and to do his good pleasure in these things.